Hello and welcome to the Mythological Africans podcast, where we read and talk about stories from African mythology and folklore. I am your host, Helen Day. Episodes of this podcast come from live recordings of the Mythological African Storytime Sessions, which take place every Friday evening at 5 p.m. Eastern Time U.S. in the Mythological Africans Twitter space. Today, we'll be reading folk tales from Mali and Namibia. Welcome again to everybody. What we do here is we get together to read and talk about folk tales from different parts of the African continent. That's really it. And um, I think about it as uh, one hour of just fun and joy um, because the stories are usually just, you know, sweet, fun, hilarious stories. And we get, you know, some really good discussions going. So I can't wait to hear what will come up with these. And as usual, just to let you all know that these sessions are recorded, so keep that in mind as you participate. Um, and we will go ahead and get started with the hat and the monkeys. So, uh, let's do this, make sure I have it pulled up. Perfect. All right, the hat and the monkeys by Baba Wagwe Diakite. Subamusa, the hat was a joyful man. He traveled from town to town selling hats, which he piled high on his head. He manun ninkoi kadisa, he sang, which means, what a wonderful business hat selling is. Ever since he was a little boy, Bamusa made and sold hats. His grandparents and his own parents were hat makers, and they taught him to do this at a young age. After each harvest, the whole family would venture out to the fields to collect rice stalks from which they made wide-brimmed Ziviri hats to sell. And during the rainy season, they embroidered close-fitting Fugulan caps with intricate patterns of brightly colored threads. Through his joyful spirit and hard work, Bamusa had become very well known in the neighboring towns. Wherever he arrived with his hats piled high on his head, Children would follow him and sing along as he sang his favorite song. He manuninkoe kadisa. He manuninkoe kadisa. This is the story of how Bamusa learned an important secret for success. One day, Bamusa heard the great heard that a great festival was to take place in a neighboring town. There, he could sell more hats than he'd ever sold before. So he spent many days making hats for this event. To get to the festival by evening, he began his journey early in the morning. But he was in such a hurry, he did not eat any breakfast. And halfway to town, Bamusa grew so tired and hungry, he had to stop and rest under a shady mango tree. He unloaded the hats from the top of his head and put them on the ground next to him. He covered his face with one as a blind shade to keep the sun from his eyes. And soon, Bamusa fell asleep and began to snore loudly. Little did Bamusa know that the fruit from this tree attracted monkeys, and Bamusa's snoring alerted them to his company. As usual, monkeys are very curious and smart, so they crept down from the tree quietly, quietly, 
and sneaked around Bamusa. Being attracted to the colorful hat, each monkey selected one. Then they climbed back up the tree and imitated Bamusa covering their faces and snoring. Soon Bamusa awoke from his sleep, rested but hungry. And eager to continue his journey, he looked for his hats. But where were they? Had they been stolen? Frantically, Bamusa called for help. Hey, Manun, hey, Manun, he cried out. When the monkeys heard this, they answered, hoo, hoo, hoo. Bamusa looked up and realized what had happened. But he was so hungry, he could not think clearly what to do. So he raised his arms in the air and yelled. The monkeys stared down and replied, whoop, 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 shaking their arms wildly. Bamusa threw a dead branch at them, hoping to scare them off, but the monkeys merely threw leaves at him in return. Then Bamusa picked up a stone and threw it up into the tree. Then the monkeys picked mangoes and threw them down at Bamusa. By this time, Bamusa was faint with hunger, so he collected the fruit and sat down to eat. He ate until his stomach was full. Now Bamusa could think clearly, so he knew what he must do. He removed the only hat he had left in his head and shook it up in the air, the monkeys shouting, He manun, he manun. All the monkeys did the same, grabbing the hat off their heads, howling, hoo, hoo, hoo. Then Bamusa dropped his hat to the ground, and all the monkeys dropped their hats. Without losing a second, Bamusa collected all his hats, stacked them above his head, and rushed to his destination. He arrived not a moment too soon. So great was Bamusa's happiness from his recent luck that his spirit of goodwill helped sell all his hats. And so it was that Bamusa learned from the monkeys. It is with a full stomach that one thinks best. For an empty satchel cannot stand. Any thoughts on this story? Helen, I was going to ask real quick. There's an author's note that comes mm -hmm. at the end of the story that is really cool about how he learned the story. Right. I was hoping to get some reactions and then ah, okay. read the author's notes to, to see like what, what comes out from people and what the author's note says as well. So reactions, what I'm interested in is, first of all, is if, is if this story sounds familiar, right? Because that's usually the, the main thing I'm interested in, if you've heard some iteration of this story, but also the, the wisdom, the moral of the story about making sure that you eat. Because it, it, when you think about the, the communities that we come out of and how important, you know, just for the work and walking and everything that you do, um, I imagine there are proverbs, adages and other sayings across the board that have to do with food. I might have to do a search in some of the, the books of African proverbs that I have bookmarked to see what comes up. That proverb at the end about an empty satchel will not stand. There's mm -hmm. European versions of that same one and it's like an empty sack will not stand. But the same idea, you know, because hunger is the same all around the world. You got to eat. Sure right? It sure is. And that's, that's something that, um, so I don't know if any of you saw it, but yesterday uh, for Folklore Thursday, the theme was wealth and money. So I decided to do a thread of proverbs, right, about wealth and money from different African people. 
And reading reading through these proverbs, like there was one proverb that talked about it was from the Ashanti people where it was like, okay, if gold is found in a town, it belongs to all the people, which, you know, is basically an expression of technically communist values, right? That property, wealth, resources are the the belong to the people, should be used for the people. And, you know, a simple proverb, couple of couple of words, but with such a profound, you know, worldview philosophy embedded in it. And something that struck me is that, you know, we we love our proverbs on the African continent, right? We enjoy them, we use them widely. But I feel like we don't give enough attention to the fact that these are the philosophies, right, that structured our communities. So you had proverbs that talked about, you know, work, no, no, there is no shame in working. You know, you had proverbs that talked about money matters with family, about, you know, how when it's your family, you are a bit less stressed out about borrowing money sometimes. But through these proverbs, you can really get a sense of like, okay, what are these people about? And that's something to, important to remember, right? Because um, you get the impression sometimes that, you know, African spiritualities, African philosophies are not well articulated unless you go read some big, thick, heavy volume. But you really don't need to go far. Sometimes uh, the, the proverbs of a people will really give you an insight into what they believe and what they value. And just like Laura was saying, um, the idea that you need food, you know, to think clearly um, is just such a fundamental belief, no matter where you are on earth, because it's a biological truth, first and foremost. But in a, in a community, in, in an environment where, you know, there might be shortage or things like that, that really becomes, you know, the, the, the ethic, you know, the way people approach each other. If there's scarcity, then that, that undergirds the, the, the sharing. Right, because we want a community to be together. So a lot you can learn from proverbs, um, but we're not talking about proverbs necessarily. We're talking about um, the hat seller, Vamusa and his hats. So I'm going to go ahead and read the, the author's notes because it, like Laura said, it's off. I see two hands up. Let's do this, Laura. Let's go to Mukuka, then we'll stop by you, and then we'll move on. How's that sound? Good. All right, Mukuka. I would have preferred she goes first because I have a feeling she's got a more serious point than my remarking <laughs> at your reading of the snoring. Was that in, in the book or that came from you? No, that was that, that was in the book and I tried my best. There are other sounds in the book which I, I didn't want to even attempt. So you should check the book out and read it yourself. But that, that snoring came from the book and I put my own little spin on it. <laughs> I hope you liked it. It was fun watching the little transcriber try to figure out what you were saying too, because whenever you make noises that don't aren't words, the little AI doesn't know what to do. Oh, that's funny. I didn't realize that there is an AI on your end. Oh, this is hilarious. This is hilarious. All right, I'm gonna have to go listen to the recording then to see to see what that was about. But go ahead, Laura. I I have another monkey story that I wanted to share about. Uh, uh, it's very gruesome compared to this one, but it's the same trick. Right, oh, so this man. is a, a Tigray story from Ethiopia, and this is very, mm -hmm. I've got a very short version. It's called The Scholar and the Monkey. A scholar sat writing, scratching out mistakes with his knife. A monkey was watching. As soon as the scholar left, the monkey jumped on the scholar's desk and tried to write. 
when the scholar returned, he found his manuscript all smeared. Then he noticed the monkey watching him. The scholar smiled, picked up his knife, and rubbed the blunt edge against his throat. When the scholar left again, the monkey jumped back on the table and grabbed the knife. But because he didn't know the difference between the sharp edge and the blunt, he cut his own throat and died. Oh. Well, what, 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 what's up with that scholar? Are there any other notes around this? Because that just sounds like a mean thing to do. But then again, if you've been working on a manuscript for quite a while and then some monkey comes and smears it, I can understand. But poor monkey, what the heck? No love for the monkey there. And I, I think know. that's why that Bamusa story is so much cuter. But of course, I thought of this one because oh it's a similar God. idea. Man, that's a bloody story. What's what's up, Tigray? What 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 are we doing? Wow. And that's that's the interesting thing about folklore, right? Like you have these cutesy, fun, feel-good stories, and then you just have like the bloody, <laughs> the bloody like gruesome ones where you just finish and you're sitting there like, what just happened? Why? Why why did this have to be this way? It's it's well, insane. And, and also the relationship with wildlife, you know, mm -hmm. because we have this great fondness for, say, elephants. But there's all kinds of places where elephants pose a real danger and elephants mm -hmm. are really hated for the destruction that they cause. So, so there's all this ambivalence about all kinds of wildlife that live, you know, with that boundary that, that share spaces with humans. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a really good point, right? I don't know if you all were paying attention with the story of the, the lady in India who an elephant showed up at her funeral and just like, I think the elephant killed her, uh, came to her house and trampled on her and killed her and then showed up at her funeral to cause even more havoc. And, you know, Twitter had, as Twitter would, had a field day with this story where, you know, people were taking the elephant's side and, you know, and then someone did a thread about how the, like, yes, you know, this woman, what, it looks like what happened is that she distracted the elephant while poachers stole, uh, uh, captured the elephant's child. And, of course, that would enrage any being, you know. But then the more you dug into the story, you had the situation where she did that because of, you know, disenfranchisement and marginalization that her, her, her um, ethnic group are going through in the country. Like, basically, it just turned into this complex story of you know people because we are disenfranchised and discriminated against and you know pushed to the margins of society have to rely on whatever ways they can to survive which include you know helping poachers to end a living but then you do that and an elephant shows up and kills you and you know wrecks your village and it's just this vicious cycle of animal human relations gone wrong um and then, you know, other stories were coming out about how for many people in that part of the world, elephants, you know, are not the cuddly, friendly animals because people have farms and they destroy them. But then these farms are in the elephants, you know, grazing grounds or their migration paths. And, you know, this this whole complex ecosystem emerges where you can't really point the finger at one person and say, hey, you did wrong. Or you can't point the finger at the animal and say, hey, you did wrong because it's it's all dependent on each other and it's just an unfortunate situation altogether. So 
but but yes, illustrating one the understanding that we we live in this world where we we have to share space with other creatures, and you know we can work with them, you know, understanding how they they do things and use that to our advantage, as Bamusa did, or we can take a different approach, right? Like the scholar, which I'm I'm team monkey here because that that was just unnecessary, if you ask me. That was absolutely unnecessary. But moving on from my rambling, uh, let's let's read this author note because they're they're always fun. I remember reading the author note for his um other story, the the crocodile story, um, and that was a really really deep story. So I think he he read that story in in a Twitter space here. Um, but yeah, so author's note on the hat seller and the monkeys. I first heard the story of Bamusa and the monkeys in my home country of Mali in Africa. The Fulani of Mali are by tradition cattle herders, and so naturally they are also milk sellers. A Fulani milk seller came to our compound daily to sell his milk. And one particular day he arrived wearing two wide-brimmed cone-shaped hats called Gudiri. The children laughed, but the Fulani man said that with two hats stacked, one gets twice as much protection from the sun and heat. My uncle, however, was reminded of the hat seller story, and that evening he told it to us. There are many Bamusa stories in our culture, but this one is popular, as monkeys are always a favorite of us children and adults because of their humorous antics. In fact, Koroduga, who is the clown in mask dances, is represented by a monkey face. Animals and man have been and still are instructors to each other in learning life lessons. In this story, the monkeys cause the man much difficulty, but in the end, they teach him that it is only after eating well that one can think clearly and enjoy success. In many African tales, one must sometimes suffer before there is happiness. This helps prepare us for life. From childhood, we expect both happiness and some difficulty. This teaches us patience and perseverance. Stories are not told as entertainment, but they give us knowledge on how to conduct ourselves, to live among others and nature. I grew up listening to adults tell me proverbs and stories as advice to guide me through my own life. Teaching our children and setting a good example must truly be a duty for every adult as children are our reflection. This popular piece of folklore has been told in various countries around the world, including Egypt, Sudan, Mali, India, and England. And the theme of having a peddler having his wares ransacked by monkeys while taking a nap was a popular motif in European art during and after the Middle Ages. Any thoughts, reactions to that? This is, I think, why I like animal stories so much because they really do travel from one country to another. You know, that the, the monkey provides this great affordance for storytelling and so who, who cares where the story came from? You just exactly. know it's going to spread wherever yeah. it goes. Right. And, and because, like, like he says here, you know, we, we live on this earth with animals. We share space with them. And, you know, if you come from a time when you lived up and close with them, of course, you're going to, you're going to observe the antics and learn from them. So, and to your point, Laura, you know, who cares where the story comes from? Because obviously it resonates across so many cultures and it has relevance. So 
um, that matters. And the interesting thing is I was reading the, the list of countries where this story is popular, right? You have Mali, Sudan, Egypt, and India. And I was just thinking of the Silk Road, <laughs> you know, this trade route that went all the way from China and extended into Africa. And as I talked about in the last space, when you think about it for hundreds and hundreds and perhaps thousands of years, People traveled on this road by horse and camel and goodness knows what. And when they camped in the evening, what did they do? They sat around and told stories. So that that is our shared heritage as human beings. All right. If there are no other comments and reactions to this story, we will move on to the stolen water and other stories, traditional tales from Namibia. And this is written or retold by Jennifer Davis. Um, and as I was as I was uh, talking about before, maybe some of you joined. Apparently, these stories were collected um, from amongst the the Swana people, who are a minority population in Namibia. So, um, reading from the preface of the book, so to contextualize it a little bit, traditional storytelling in Namibia, as in other parts of Africa, is usually at night after the evening meal when everyone is gathered around the fire. The grandparents tell the children stories, but in many parts of, this of the country and the continent, if I might add, this tradition is dying out as people move to towns. And many old people I visited showed concern about the fact that young people are losing their traditions and that this is adversely affecting their manners and general behavior. And they feel that if the youth kept in touch with their past, they will have a greater pride in their identity. In Twana, I met an elderly woman who used to take young girls on expeditions into the bush to collect berries. There, she would teach them their traditional songs and dances and tell them stories, teaching them the role of women in their society. There are many stories which illustrate the scarcity of water since many parts of Namibia are vast and arid. There are stories of serpents who have power over water and must be obeyed at all times. Supernatural beings play an important role. There is a mysterious Nagali who gives direction and comes to the rescue of those who really need him. Enchanted trees appear in tales which are told to warn children of evil lurking in areas too far from their homes. And cautionary tales are common, teaching obedience and avoidance of dangerous places. Animal stories appear throughout Namibia, as do tyrants or monsters. And here there is a political level to the folk tales, depicting the nature of power and oppression within society. In the story called Nambai Shita, the tables are turned on a powerful king with the help of natural forces such as the mole, spider, wind, and the spring hare. Folk tales appeal to all ages because they satisfy deep emotional needs. Folk tales explain and give order to the natural and the social world and the people who inhabit them. So let's stop there and look at which stories we want to read. So um, there are two stories I want us to take a look at um, from this book. One is the story of the great snake. And I want us to read this story because um, we've, I've talked about this on Twitter before, but Snake symbolism and mythologies, you know, tend to get a bad rep, 
But then you really look at the folklore of African people and you'll find that quite often the snakes are, you know, powerful, dangerous, but mostly beneficent beings. So this is just yet another example and I figured, you know, we should we should read it. And then let's also read the story of Nambaishika, right? So we'll start with the story of the great snake. And if you're reading along with us, it's on page 68 of the book. All right. The Great Snake. There was once a young boy named Katsina who had a crippled leg. He couldn't play much with the other children, so they took little notice of him, and he had no friends. Often he would sit at the water hole by himself and watch the kingfishers dive for fish. One day he saw a large creature emerge from the water. He called to it, but it disappeared. That's strange, he thought. He went back to the village to tell the other children, but they only laughed at him and told him he was making up stories. Nevertheless, they all went to the water hole to see for themselves, and of course, to have a swim. See, Katsima, cried the oldest boy, I'll dive down and find your monster. Everyone laughed. The boy dived down, but didn't come up again. The children were terrified and ran back to tell their parents, and everyone in the village was filled with sorrow because this was the fourth child to drown there. But Katima had an idea. Deep into the forest he walked until his weak leg ached. He was searching for Nagali. All the time he called out for this little spirit the old people talked about, the spirit who helps those in trouble. Eventually, Nagali heard the cries of Katsima and called from the branches of a great baobab tree. What is your trouble? Katsima sat panting in the grass under the tree and told Nagali what had happened. Come with me. Nagali took Katsima's hand and together they flew swiftly and silently over the treetop to the water hole. There, Nagali called out over the water and an enormous snake emerged from the depths. Katsima fell to the ground in fear. There's nothing to fear, Nagali said. This is the keeper of the watering place. Keeper, give us the children, commanded Nagali. The great serpent obediently swam to the sandy bank and opened its mouth. To Katsima's amazement, out stepped four children. Never again swim in the water hole, Nagali scolded the children. The water is for drinking. Katsima did well to find me, for only I can speak to the keeper. We will never do that again, the children replied, holding on to Katsima. Katsima, cried the oldest boy. I didn't believe you. And now you have saved us. We are your friends. They all watched as the great serpent returned to the depths of the water hole. Katsima smiled and turned to Nagali. Thank you, Nagali. I will return the children to their homes now, and there will be great rejoicing in the village. Then Nagali flew off silently into the night. Katsima and the children returned to the village and told their strange tale. The people were filled with joy. They prepared a feast to celebrate the safe return of their children and to honor Katsima the hero. And for many nights, they danced around the cooking fires and sang songs of thanks to the boy, Nagali, 
and the keeper of the water hole. Any thoughts on this one? I just wanted to jump in and add too, for people who aren't looking at the book, there's some beautiful illustrations mm -hmm. in this book mm -hmm. and the one for this story is especially just gorgeous. Yeah, it, it really is. So definitely take a look at the book. Um, as soon as we're done, I will return it. So if you want to check it out, you're able to do that too. So, but yeah, any any thoughts on, on, in the, on the story? I'm curious um, for those who are here and from the African continent, if you're familiar with the folklore and the, the ways of your people, what the thoughts on snakes are. Anyone? Go ahead, Laura. Well, my knowledge just comes from books, but I tell you not so much about snakes, but I love these swallowing monster stories mm. that have happy endings. You know, because sometimes whole villages come out of these monsters, mm -hmm. you know, when, when they're finally obliged in this case, very peaceably, to, to give up what they've swallowed. It's one of my favorite African folktale types. And I think it's mostly in Southern Africa, mm -hmm. but, but mm -hmm. you can find it all over. I really love this type of story. Right. And and listening to you talk, the main one I can think about is the story of Dikeluane. Um, I think that is from the, oh gosh, um, same people, Takane came from um pop, pop, pop. i can look that up real quick it's i know there's a zulu version of a swallowing elephant and yeah and so soto right. all these south african versions are really very cool and and in 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 the the in Takane's story it's called the the monster is called the kamapa and it swallows the whole world is what it does like everybody in there so but something that struck me about this story, um, this particular one, the great snake, is how, um, so it's not just that the snake was there to terrify children and frighten them. The snake was there to protect the water hole, which is where people carried water, right? And it, it made me think about the Ibiobio people, right, in Nigeria. And they also have um, sacred springs, sacred pools from which it's um it's not that you can't swim in it, but they have a special day in their week when only um pure virgins or pure maidens, as they say, so I, I assume women who have not been married, women who don't have children, are allowed to go to the pool. And it, it makes me wonder about these these different traditions that people have around water. Because you could look at it from the, the mystical end, right? This pool is protected by this snake and what but practically speaking you know because that's that's the thing myths folklore all these stories they have you know the 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 mystical you know story side but then it always in my experience reduces down to something practical right something that supports or promotes a particular behavior that is you know beneficial to the people in the village or that is necessary to keep people behaving or thinking and believing a certain way. And so in the case of this snake, you know, it was to stop people from drinking 
oh, sorry, from swimming in water that people, you know, drink from, and that makes perfect sense. You can imagine if you had a, a spring that was fresh, you know, clean water, you would want to make sure that nobody, you know, drinks from it. So I imagine you, you're telling a story about a, a pool where there's a big snake would get the job done. Um, but in the in the Ibibio story, um, the on this special day when only certain kinds of women could go, only you know pure women could go to the pool. I I don't know this for a fact, but I imagine it's it's maybe just a day to give the pool a chance to flow and kind of clean itself up and reset before you know hordes of people descend on it again. But it's an interesting story because, you know, there is a leopard spirit that protects the pool. There's a tree spirit. So it's all, it weaves in different aspects of the ABOB worldview. Um, no snakes that I could see, <laughs> but just waterways, water, and all of that. Um, there, there, there's a pretty rich folklore around it, you know, for understandable reasons, right? When you think about the role, role that water plays, drinking, travel, cleaning, watering farms and everything, um, it makes sense that this, this is something that has a whole lot of folklore associated with it. But if you don't, if you don't have anything to share today, um, keep, keep it in mind. Hi, Aral, good to have you. Keep it in mind. Just pay attention to the, the stories that, that um, come up in your culture around snakes in particular. Note if they're positive or if they're negative. Um, I see you are now and you're coming up next. Notice their positive or if they're negative and how they weave into the worldview, right? Because, um, like I said, there's a lot of negative connotations associated with snakes in the African worldview. And, but then if you really look at the folklore and the mythology, it's just not the case. So, Arau, let's have you come up. And in the meantime, I'll dig through um, the archives and pull up the thread I did about snakes in African mythology anyone is interested go ahead Arau. um i wanted to say that i think it's i'm from uganda um for any listeners there um i wanted to say that it's interesting um the symbolism of snakes before missionaries arrived in uganda and after mm -hmm. missionaries arrived so i want to share something with you uh and your and listeners about there's an island in Uganda. Um, it's in Lake Victoria. It's called mm. it's called Musambwa, um, and it's a six acre island. And it's only inhabited by about a hundred men. Women are not allowed. Um, and here, people coexist with snakes. Um, oh wow! Um, both inside and outside of their houses. So you can find vipers, pythons, cobras. And the legend is, the story is that um, all these snakes don't bite, bite people, um, you know, live side by side with these men. Um, and so killing the snakes or any other reptile on the island is taboo because these snakes inhibit, uh, at least what um, the traditional spirituality um, mm -hmm. says, is that these snakes inhibit spirits or ancestors or basically beings from other realms from the other world right wow. um so killing the snakes or any other reptile is taboo um so i thought that was really interesting i have plans to visit this island 
I don't, <laughs> even though they say women are not allowed, I'm still going to try <laughs> and go anyway because I'm stubborn. Um, but um, I found, I find this talk that you're doing so interesting because um, with the coming of Christianity came the fear of snakes or, mm-hmm. or the fear of certain animals, which weren't feared before, but were seen as just an ordinary part of nature. Um, so I, I just find this whole conversation very interesting. I'm so sorry that I'm late, um, but I just found it very interesting. Um, and also, uh, one of my friends, she's from Benin, the country, not Benin, mm-hmm. not Benin in Nigeria, <laughs> Benin. Right. Yeah. And she was also telling me about the reverence of snakes in, mm-hmm. in her mm-hmm. culture. So, um, this is such an interesting conversation. I'm going to, I'm going to keep quiet now. Okay. <laughs> thank you. No, no, no. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for contributing because like I said, it, it baffles me. Like I grew up also in an environment where snakes were seen as, you know, be dangerous, be careful. Of course, the association to the snake in the garden of Eden and all of that. So it blew my mind. It blew my mind when I started looking at traditional African cultures and, I mean, there, there are places, the FIPA in Tanzania, they don't kill snakes because they believe that these are their um, kings. So they just don't kill them. And of course, you have the, 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 the island that you just mentioned, which I put a couple of tweets in the space about that. Um, but it's, it's all over, you know. You want to talk about Benin. Um, that's where uh, Vodun is practiced. And there's Aida Wedu, who is a rainbow serpent, you know, the one of the highest, most revered figures in in that in that um in that worldview in that system of belief, among the Dagara people in Burkina Faso and Ghana, a woman learns the secret of the link between sex and childbirth from a snake. Like you you have all these and there's like there's just so much out there, um that that portrays snakes in a completely different light, and I think it's it's kind of an injustice. Like it's kind of an injustice, and listening to the story about this island is making me think of the when we did story time. We focused on stories from Zanzibar, and there is a story about um, the king of snakes. I'm gonna see if I can find this because um, I know I tweeted about it. I think there's also a version from Uganda of that story too, Helen. I'll try to pick it up. Right, right. So you know, and then. I'm going to put this tweet, which was on the timeline also recently, um, about the snake, the red, the uh, red black striped snake of the uh, uh, Benin or Edo people in Nigeria. And this is, um, is associated with Olokun, who is like the, the sea, the, the uh, god of the sea and is powerful. There's, of course, Mamiwata, who has a lot of snake symbolism associated with her. Uh, the physician's son and the king of snakes is the, is the story from the Zanzibari, which features, you know, snakes. So no matter where you look at, you have all these, you know, stories and ideas around snakes and snake symbolism. Oh, my God, Nisha, hey! Gosh, it's so good to have you here. I'm sorry, you guys. It's Nisha. Um, you have all these snake symbolism, which just goes 
along the side because there's this strong, strong, strong influence of ideologies that paints them in a different way. Now, of course, there are dangerous snakes, the black mamba, the green mamba, vipers, you know, these are not, these are not, um, these are not uh, uh, things to mess around with, but you look at our folklore and our mythology, it's a different story. It's definitely something worth paying attention to. So let's see. We have, all right, I put a bunch of tweets in the space, so go take a look. Um, and I also put a tweet to a documentary about the Husambwa Island, which now I'm just totally, totally fascinated. So let's find another story to read from this book. And we said we we're going to read the story about... Um, We're gonna be what was that called? Uh, can't find it. Nambaishita. All right, Nambaishita, and it's on page twenty. If you're reading along with us, all right. The story of Nambaishita. There once lived a cruel king named Katakula. Each rainy season, he sent his messengers to take one-fifth of every man's herds. When harvest time came, he demanded one-fifth of all that had been harvested, and anyone who disobeyed was instantly put to death. The wisest of the headmen had once asked the king to lessen the taxes on the poorest people, but he and his family had been banished from the land. So as the king became richer and more powerful, the people became poorer and more miserable. They hated and feared this cruel king, but were powerless to stop him. Now there was a young woman named Kandali living in the country who searched for ostrich eggs each season. The king's messengers always came to her home to take one-fifth of them away. One day she found a very large, strange egg in the forest, so she took it home and hid it in her grain basket. The king heard about the egg and sent his messengers to find it. When the messengers came to Kandali's home, they demanded to know where the egg was. Kandali was afraid. She showed them the egg, but begged them not to take it. The messengers took no notice of her pleading and grabbed the egg. It broke and out stepped a young boy child. What is this? You are a witch, the men cried in fear. Then the child spoke. I am Nambaishita, the peaceful one. I've come from this egg. I was not created by man and shall be ruled by no man. My mother now is Kandali. Leave us and go in peace. The terrified messengers ran to tell the king. Katakula was alarmed. I shall see this child myself. What does he mean when he says he will be ruled by no man? He will not leave to overthrow me. And so in a rage, he went at once to Kandali's home. When the king arrived, Kandali was afraid and held her child. But the beautiful young Nambaishita looked at the king fearlessly, and Katakula felt the strange power of the boy. This is indeed an unusual child, the king said to Kandali. But he feared the boy. And so he said, when Nambaishita becomes a man, he must visit me. Katakula planned to destroy Nambaishita. 
Nambashita grew up quickly and all the people loved him for his kindness and goodness. He was also wise and soon became a leader among the people. The king heard these things and his fear of the boy grew. Finally, the time came for Nambashita to visit Tatakula. He took four servants with him to help him on his journey. Mole, spider, wind, and the spring hare. He also took his tobacco pouch with its leather cord, which he hung around his neck. After they had traveled for some time, they reached a large field which blocked their path. It was thickly covered with devil's thorns. Nambashita called his servant Mole to help him. So Mole pushed up mounds of earth, one after the other, so that Nambashita and his servants could step on them to cross safely. Further on, they reached the river in full flood. Nambashita called Spider to help him. Spider spun silk threads to form a bridge across the river. Nambashita and his servants crossed safely to the other side. Not too far from Katakura's home, they came to a hedge too thick to pass through. This time Nambashita called his servant Wind. Wind blew the hedge apart so that Nambashita and his servants could continue on their way. When they reached Katakula's Mahongo fields, they found them too dense to pass through. So Nambashita called on his servant Spring Hare to help them. And Spring Hare quickly ate a path through the field so that they could proceed on their journey. At last, they arrived at the king's house. Katakula was amazed that Nambashita had overcome all the dangers put in his path. But being a cunning man, he had another plan in mind. Welcome to my home, Nambashita, he greeted the young man politely. Nambashita greeted the king and was then taken to see Katakula's lands. The king ordered his servants to follow them. When they reached the tall baobab tree, the king turned to Nambashita and said, if you climb this tree, you will have a good view of my lands. Before climbing up, Nambashita said to the king, Please hang my pouch around your neck. It will be in my way while I climb. So Katakula did as he was asked and the young man climbed the tree. While Nambashita was looking far to the north, admiring the king's great fields, Katakula suddenly called out, Tree, rise and carry him away. But as the tree began to move, Nambashita called out, Pouch, quick! Katakula was alarmed when the leather cord twisted itself around his neck. And fearing that he would be strangled, he quickly called out, Tree, be still! When the tree was still, Nambashita climbed down and ordered his pouch to stop. The pouch let go of Katakula's neck and the king fell to his knees defeated. All the servants were amazed at what they had seen and ran to tell the people of the villages. Katakula, fearing punishment for his evil ways, fled the country and was never seen again. The people rejoiced and called for Nambashita to be made their leader. And so Nambashita, the peaceful one, became king and ruled wisely for many prosperous years. Any thoughts on this story? 
And as you guys think, I'm going to find try to find it because I've seen a version of this story in a collection, I think, from uh, Liberia, uh, Grains of Pepper. I, I think you might know this book, Laura, but I'm pretty sure there's a version of this story in there. In the meantime, any any thoughts on this? Does it sound familiar? Have you heard it somewhere? I just want to chime in real quick about that spring hare in case people were wondering about it. The spring hares live just in southern Africa and they're not actually hares or, or rabbits at all. They're like this weird own species type of rodent with these really long legs and they hmm. leap and and they have biofluorescent fur. And so they're the, the only documented mammal that has this biofluorescent fur and it's in their like grooming areas and stuff. So it has somehow something to do with the way they groom. So anyway, very cool that, you know, on the one hand, this story has all these very generic fairy tale type motifs, you know, that people can recognize, but it's got this super distinctive local animal in there, that, that spring hair, which I thought was really mm. cool. You know, that is such an interesting detail, Laura, because I just assumed there was some species of pear. I didn't realize that it had this, you know, whole story around it. But because Twitter is amazing, there are actually tweets about this everywhere, including one with um, that biofluorescent color. So I just put that in there. This is fascinating. And they do look like kangaroos. Wow, this is intense. All right, you guys. Um, while I try to find this other story, because I'm now kind of obsessed about it and I need to check it out. Um, anybody thoughts, questions, reactions to this story? I'm kind of on this mission to to get people to stop thinking that fairy tales are this purely European thing. And to me, this kind of story where on the one hand has all these fairy tale type elements, you know, the animal helpers and all of that. But at the same uh -huh. time, this total justice theme that the whole point right. of this fairy tale adventure is not about the prosperity of, say, the individual hero or even heroine, mm. but about the good of the whole people like that's the whole point of 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 this hero being born from this magical egg it's not just gratuitous fairy tale magic it's like for the right, good of the right. world no it, it really is like like you said it has all the classic elements of a fairy tale right animal helpers and you know wicked kings and all of that but the the justice is the point in this case right to this this boy pretty much showed up to save the people from this king. It's also making me think of the the story of a senseless king, uh, Manta. There is a Cameroonian version where the king was pretty much taking uh, taking credit for you know other people's work being oppressive as you know kings can be, and this little girl shows up to teach him a lesson and. It has a bit of that um, enfant terrible characteristic to it, right? This would be the, um, I had a category, there's a destructive, there's a transformative. He, this this uh, boy, number, number, am I saying that right? You guys hold on, let me go make sure I'm looking at this correctly. Number Shieta, um has aspects of that enfant terrible um, um, characteristic to him, you know, super smart, 
you know, introduces a whole dynamic into the community and effects, you know, great change. So, but then you can imagine if if this story was told in, in an environment where, you know, the king was behaving this way, I see it as a way of saying, hey, you know, this is what we stand by. And if you come up in the community with the, 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 the characteristics that this young man has, then you you are worthy to be king. You know, sort of like a gentle, you know, maybe not so gentle, like a, a, a indirect criticism, you know, of, of the, the, the ruling, the ruling class or the ruling person. So, but you guys, I think I found this other story. It's called Zoluzuma and the Priest. Um, and I am going to make sure... Let me see. Zoluzuma and the priest. All right. I'm going to read it if we, well, we have, what, three more minutes. So maybe, maybe we don't have time to this. But I'll include it. I'll include it in our review. Because I'm pretty sure this is a similar type story. Ask someone to climb the tree. But I'll put it in there. And if you read it, then let me know if it's, if it's similar. Um, but I think we are going to wrap it up for today because I have to pack. I'm going on vacation. I'm pretty excited, but any, any last minute questions, thoughts, reactions, um, Arrow, thank you so much for speaking up and telling us about that island because I think that is fascinating. Like I, I'd never heard of such a thing before. And now I just, I have to go watch it because it is, that is something like, wow, wow absolutely wow so anyway you guys uh thank you for making time uh, next friday we are not going to meet because like i said i'm on vacation and i'm going to try to be offline as much as i can manage if like probably not at all but we'll but i we have the ongoing um, um raffle so if you're not aware of it we have a talk or twitter space coming up where we where we are going to be talking about the woman thing. So that's um, Viola Davis's movie about the Dahomey Amazons. So, and we're running a raffle if you want to win books or get into, get um, tickets to watch the movie. And that's if you're in the US, right? Um, this is, I'm going to make sure that you guys get the right tweet. This is a tweet to like and retweet to enter the raffle for this week. Uh, I'm going to drop that in the space. So that's coming up in September. So hope to see you there. Um, but So I might show up online next week to, you know, put out the promo tweet for that so people can enter the chance to win the raffle. But otherwise, starting tomorrow, you probably will not see or hear much from me online. So please take care of yourselves in the meantime. Um, be safe, you know, there's corona and monkeypox and goodness knows what out there. So please, please, please take care of yourselves and be good to each other. And thank you again for making time to join me. Have a great rest of your day and your weekend. Thank you all so, so, so much. All right? Bye, everyone. If you'd like to participate in these discussions, please follow Mythological Africans on Twitter at Mythic Africans and set a reminder for Friday evenings at 5 p.m.